Well, thank you very much for coming. It's lovely to see you here. We're doing this talk a couple of weeks ahead of International Women's Day, which is on the 8th of March. Uh, of course, there's no way in about an hour and a half to even really do much more than scratch the surface of the list of wonderful, brilliant, fascinating, quite sometimes quite mad uh, thousands of women who've performed here. If this goes well, maybe I'll do another one and we can talk about some more of them. Um, for today, I'll be focusing on a couple of absolute favorites and some people whose presence here might surprise you. Uh, as I said, we're recording the talk um, and it'll be online as soon as possible. But in the meantime, um, someone at my last talk had the marvelous idea, which I had not thought of, of having a sort of crib sheet for you to take away at the end, because I do go through a lot of names. There are always a lot of names and details. So up here, if you would like to take one at the end, there is a list of all of the significant names that I will have gone through in this talk and a little bit of context for some of them so that you can remember who they are and maybe go away and look them up if you feel so inclined. Uh, and of course, at the end, I'll also gladly answer questions if I'm able to. I am bookending this talk with two completely different women, um, one from the turn of the 20th century, one whose career was at its height in the late 60s and the 70s, one who was immortalized in art and poetry and whose name became a byword for her artistic milieu, and one who's been sort of forgotten about, uh, relegated a bit to a kind of jokey footnote in music history. And in between those two women, we are going to go on a slightly rapid fire journey, a sort of flick book through some women who changed the world in a variety of ways um, and look at their connections to Wigmore Hall. So we'll begin with uh, one of the most extraordinary and one of the most enduring figures of the hall's early years, the grand dame of French cabaret, Yvette Gilbert. Uh, most of the times when she comes up, someone will say to me, not the Yvette Gilbert, who knew Toulouse-Lautrec, but it is the same one. I heard you correctly identify this piece of artwork as one of the many, many drawings that Toulouse-Lautrec did of her during her career as a cabaret artist in France in the late 19th century. She was born in 1865 and she was headlining the Moulin Rouge by 1890. Um, at that time, she was billed as a diseur, a speaker. So she, her big thing was rapid fire patter songs with very risque lyrics. And she had this signature look with the gloves. And, um, and she, was, she had huge fans. Sigmund Freud was a fan and Toulouse-Lautrec and all the artists who were in Paris at the time. Uh, so by the time that she appeared here, in 1902, she was a big star internationally. Um, although, for all that, there's little fanfare about her first appearances here. She's advertised in the press in the same way any other singer would be, quite quietly, little adverts saying she'd be singing 17th and 18th century songs and songs of our time, which were sort of contemporary cabaret songs. Um, and she comes back again. There are obviously a couple of successful concerts. She comes back again in 1904 for a series of at least nine concerts over a couple of months, a similar mix of ancient and modern music. Uh, the advertising remained low key, the co concerts themselves slightly more striking. Uh, a review said, during the whole program, Madame Gilbert wore a pompadour costume. <laughs> uh, and those who remember the minks in black gloves who delighted them not so many years ago will be amused with the transformation into the typical dainty rogue in porcelain. And I find it fascinating to think of somebody dressing up uh, in 18th century costume as a way to be taken more seriously as an artist. I like that. I think singers should try that today. Um, so a brief return in 1905, followed by some concerts in 1909, which she shared with uh, a young French actress, Mona Gondre, who was also a singer, pupil of hers. Um, 
as far as we know, these concerts that she did with Mona that year and in 1910 and her future concerts were all in costume. Um, she did folk songs, miniatures, bergerettes, which she often called little shepherdess songs. Um, and it seems like it was kind of an attempt to rebrand herself somewhat, to leave behind the, the sexy cabaret stuff. Uh, although the reviews always sort of say that they wish that she'd bring it back. Um, she also shared the stage with various other students of hers. One of them was this woman, who um, is American soprano and folk song collector Lorraine Wyman. So she studied with Yvette Gilbert, came here with her in 1911. Uh, Two years later, Wyman was at the White House performing folk songs. And a couple of years after that, she became one of the first people to go through the Appalachian Mountains collecting folk songs. So she did the same work as the folk song collectors in England were going through picking up those. And so that's why we have some of those songs at all. They've been passed down through generations. And she, she performed in costume, as you can see here. Um, meanwhile, Yvette Gilbert was embarking on a different journey, a series of concerts here traversing the ages accompanied by the early music ensemble La Société des Concerts d'Autrefois, which was well-reviewed. They said, she could give life and point to the deadest, stupidest ditty. Working on these very live and fragrant songs, she creates an atmosphere about her and then fills it with figures until the scene seems almost as visible to the eye as the song is to the ear. And that, although the women's hats and the arrangement of the Bechstein Hall make it difficult to see more of Madame Gilbert than her head and her arms. <laughs> uh, 1912's concerts saw her invite another pupil to the stage. I've got a lot of photographs this time and not so many scans as usual because I think it's wonderful to see these women and, and to see who they were. This is Virginia Fox Brooks. Um, she said of Gilbert, if I ever do anything really fine, I feel I shall owe it to her, to the privilege of daily association with so marvelous an artist, to all that I have learned through my intimate friendship with her. And Fox Brooks had a successful career as a singer, uh, but she became better known for her translations with her husband of 20th century plays into English and French, and also for organizing entertainments for the troops in World War II. Uh, I am highlighting the women she performed with, but I cannot miss out on the chance to mention one of the most personally exciting things I've ever found in our archive. Um, this concert over here, uh, which was from 1914, you can see the enigmatically titled Alistair there, one name like Prince, um, and it says he's doing Danse des Images Gothiques. So uh, it's already wonderful to picture anyone doing Gothic tableaus uh, on our stage upstairs, but this Alistair had a totally different career that he's better known for uh, in the 1920s. He is known for being an illustrator of the strange and sinister, uh, very much inspired by Aubrey Beardsley. Um, and I have been a massive admirer of his work for 20 years. And when I saw this in Yvette Gilbert's program, I thought, gosh, that's weird. How strange to have another single named Alistair around the same time. It can't possibly be the same man, because why would this this illustrator have been dancing about striking gothic poses on our stage. Um, and I looked into it and found out that uh, Alistair, born Hans Henning Otto Harry Baron von Voigt, um, in his youth ran away to join the circus where he learned mime and dance. And it is absolutely the same man. He toured with Yvette Gilbert. And in 1914, when he came here, his career as an artist was just about to take off. So he didn't do it again. Um, but that's very thrilling for me personally. It's amazing. 
Uh, that was 1914, and of course, then the First World War made for a hiatus in the careers of many musicians. The same is true of Yvette Gilbert. She did not come back here uh, until 1921, which uh, is around about the time that this picture on the left was taken, and I've got a lovely, lovely set of her teaching uh, attitudes, <laughs> la sourire, uh, and all, of, all the different expressions that she kind of used to convey her art. And this wonderful, wonderful review from 1921, her return. She began with a little speech, the tenor of which, for we did not catch all the details, was that we were the best audience in the world. Probably we did not deserve that, but it was very pleasant, and anyhow, we tried our best accordingly. How long it is since she was here, and how glad we are to have art back, for that is what she brings. She restores our faith. She bids us remember that there is a way behind all this turmoil of the nuove musique, of expressing true things simply and simple things truly, which was there all the time if we could have seen it. It may be that she sings, we do not know, or talks, we do not know either. We were vaguely conscious now and then that words were being used, uh, or even acts, that is possible, but it would imply that she was all the time some other than that she pretended to be, whereas she was all the time quite obviously herself and no one else. We do not know what she does, but we are glad she is going to do it again. <laughs> and so she did for a couple more shows in 1921, and then not again until April of 1937. By then, she was in her 70s. Um, and it's quite poignant to me that a review of those performances said almost exactly the same thing. It said she is herself and nothing but herself. Uh, she gave her last concerts here in 1939, just a few years before her death in 1944. As we've seen, Yvette Gilbert was an entertainer. She was more than a singer. She was also an actor and a speaker and a historian and sometimes a lecturer. She would tell stories about the songs that she was doing and give the history of the pieces. Uh, she was far from the only one of any of those to appear at the hall. And so this next section is about a group of women who rarely get mentioned in the context of the concert venue, uh, because for the most part, none of them were musicians, and they were here in their capacity as actors. So you might recognize this fabulous portrait of Ellen Terry, um, but you might not have known that she appeared here more around this kind of age. Uh, she came here in 1909, when she was in her 60s, and uh, already had decades of fame on the British stage. And she returned in 1917 for three charity events in aid of women working in the war effort, where she was joined by Lady Tree here, whose daughters all also uh, went into the theater, and, and one of whom performed here as well. And her own daughter, the incomparable Edie Craig, suffragist director, uh, groundbreaking theater director, costume designer, lesbian activist, founder of the Pioneer Players, who were a theater society dedicated to producing plays that had been banned by the censors. These amazing women uh, are just some of the actors who appeared at the hall, and it's surprising how often they were here, um, not least because a lot of concerts back then took the form of a kind of miscellany. So you'd have someone comes on to play a couple of violin pieces, there's a couple of songs, wheel somebody on to do some Shakespeare, then a piano piece. So. There's lots of room for actors to come and do a star turn and then leave again. Um, the big names tended to appear more often for special occasions, often charity events, which there were huge numbers of, not just where you'd expect them in things like the First World War, but also all the time. Uh, I've got a massive amount of causes that charities were put on shows for, lots of people who 
had fallen on hard times, had held individual benefit concerts for those people. I've got the Anti-Vivisection League, very early um, concert by them. Uh, the construction of everything from hospitals to the slightly intriguing holiday home for tired business girls, um, and the fabulously named Distressed Gentlefolks Association, which was uh, a charity for members of the aristocracy who were having a hard time adjusting to having fallen on hard times. Um, we can't stop to look at every one of the women who performed in these, obviously, but a selection of them follows. So this is Marie Dainton. She was known for her impressions. She's an early um, mimic, basically. She did impressions of other famous people, so sort of John Culshaw, Dead Ringers type thing. And she came here in 1902 to do exactly that. Uh, and this beautiful woman is Lillian Braithwaite, who starred in various things on stage and screen and co-starred with Noel Coward in The Vortex. She was also here in 1902. This magical woman is Esme Berenger. She, was, uh, she did trouser roles and she was known for her swordplay, her fencing skills. She taught swordplay to actors, male and female. Um, and she was an expert in historical swordsmanship. She came here to do some dramatic readings uh, in 1906. And, um, there she is, in fact, coming here to do these dramatic readings at this, this concert in 1906. And this is Nancy Price here with Liza Lehman. Nancy Price was here many, many times, but I've chosen this because it's one of my favorite things that ever happened here at the hall. Uh, you can see just here, the program will include the first performance of Behind the Nightlight, hitherto and other animals invented by Joan Maud, aged three, faithfully recorded by her mother, Nancy Price, with music by her godmother, Liza Lehman. And so this, this wonderful thing is um, Joan, who, who also came here and, and performed at the hall. Um, when she was three, she told her mom all about these people that she spoke to in the nursery, a whole cast of bizarre characters. And her mom wrote down all this stuff about them. And then Liza Lehman set it as dramatic monologues to music. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. And so that was given here first and only performance. Um, I wish we could bring back musically accompanied dramatic monologues. I think there's not enough of them on the stage these days. Uh, but yeah, that's a lovely thing. I've got this woman. This is uh, Fiametta Wilson or Valderhoff sometimes, depending on her mood. She taught mandolin at the Guildhall. You can see this advert from the program that she appeared in here. Uh, I quite like the speciality made in hand cal calisthenics. I guess if you teach mandolin, that's an important thing to teach your students. The mandolin was a hugely in vogue instrument at this point in time. Um, so she comes here in 1906, gives a dramatic performance of her work on the spirit of music for speaker and mandolin, unsurprisingly. Uh, and then soon afterwards develops a passionate interest in astronomy and becomes one of the first women to be a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. And that's her, her life after that. She gives up music and just looks at the stars for the rest of her life, which I think is wonderful. Uh, this is the gorgeous Constance Collier. You can see her just down here, one of the many names in this grand afternoon concert in aid of a club for Russian exiles from 1907. She performed here a few times, and then she, um, she went on to write plays with Ivan Novello, and she went to Hollywood. She taught speech classes, and she was in several films, including Rope by Alfred Hitchcock. So quite serious actor there. This wonderful woman, Muriel Matters, is an Australian-born suffragette. She, um, she came to give this recital, 
And after having done that, she met up with some of the suffragettes in London who said, you have a fantastic ability for declamation. Why don't you use it for us instead? And she, she said, all right. And so she became leader of, she organized the first Votes for Women caravan to tour the southeast of England, established several branches of the Women's Freedom League on her way. And in 1909, uh, to promote the cause during King Edward's procession to open parliament, she hired an airship and she flew it around the outskirts of London, dropping 25 kilos worth of flyers uh, onto the unsuspecting public below. And that's a picture of her in the, in the basket, which I think I was so thrilled to find that. Um, amazing stuff. Well, another, another suffragist in this photograph, somewhere in this photograph, is Inez Ben-Susan, who was also an actor from Australia. Uh, she's a playwright. She was part of the Jewish League for Women's Suffrage and shown here the Actresses Franchise League, which was a suffrage organization for any women who had been employed in the theater. Um, there is Ruth Draper, who pioneered the character monologue. So her extremely unassuming program on the right, they're all like this, all tiny little, they're really small as well, they're about this big, little sheets of paper just telling you sort of what to expect. Um, and here she is sketched by Singer Sargent and a wonderful photograph of her as well. She inspired people like Joyce Grenfell, who she was distantly related to as well, and Maureen Lippmann, um, so hugely famous, uh, did these monologues in at least six different languages. Um, amazing woman, uh, now also kind of forgotten about, except by the kind of people who do histories of comedy. Uh, speaking of historical comedy, it is sisters Elsie and Doris Waters, legendary variety show double act who appeared as part of the Adair Wounded Fund concerts, which I must talk about because they're so great. Um, in between the wars, uh, Alan Adair, magician, put on a series of charity concerts here, which, and, and in other places too, as they, they, they kind of grew in popularity and he had to find other venues to put them on as well. They were for soldiers who had been so severely wounded in the First World War that they were still hospitalized and that they kind of couldn't go places uh, without help. And some of these men were in, extremely, in an extremely bad way. And he put on these kind of comedy entertainment shows to have all of them brought to the hall so that they could feel comfortable. They were there with their, with their carers or their families and they could feel like no one was staring at them or you know that, they, that there was nothing strange about them being there. Um, this had some unintended side effects. So we've got an important notice down here. Smokers are urgently requested not to drop ash on the upholstery or carpets. You can see this is only the seventh concert of all of them. So this has obviously become a big problem over the course of only six concerts. Uh, if you go to later programs from the fund, you can see that it just says smoking's not permitted because of the damage to the carpets. And there is a marvelous and possibly apocryphal story that in the end, um, in the 1930s, the concerts had to leave Wigmore Hall because one of the things that they started doing at these was a, a raffle prize draw, a tombola prize draw. And in fact, you can see that in this program over here, the lucky draw, this program features uh, Ethel Ravnell and Gracie West or another classic double act here. Um, so you could win all sorts of things in these lucky draws. And one man won half a lobster. And there is a, as I say, possibly apocryphal story that he ate this half a lobster during the interval 
and then hid it under his chair. <laughs> and between the damage to the carpets from the smoking and the damage to the carpets from the lobster, uh, they were not having it anymore. Now, whether that's true or not, I can't tell you, but, um, but it's a great story. And it's definitely possible because half a lobster was definitely a prize that you could win in these lucky drawers. Um, moving slightly from actors uh, to declamation, I suppose this is the lovely Joan Adney Easdale, who came to the hall to recite her own poetry, um, which, as you can see here, was published by Hogarth Press, which was Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf's publishing company. And she sent her poems when she was very young to Virginia Woolf and said, I, I, I'm a huge fan of yours. Do you like them? And Virginia Woolf said, oh, this, she sent me these filthy copy books full of badly spelled poems, but I, I detected a spark of genius. So she, she published those. Uh, in 1931, which was the same year that she appeared here with her brother. Um, and we know that Virginia Woolf was actually at this concert. She has a sad story. She could have been successful like this, but she was not enormously stable. She went to America and uh, had a sort of heat stroke induced breakdown and ended up in an asylum. And it's very sad that she, she then when she was out of the asylum, she came to Brighton and she changed her identity. She went by a completely different name. And her family has written a, a, a book about trying to find her story and find this person who wrote these poems inside the kind of secondary identity that she created. And it's very sad, but, uh, but she was here. She was here twice with her brother to read her own poems over his settings of them. So, um, after the Second World War, the kind of actor star turn thing was not in fashion anymore. And of course, we've got the advent of television and that kind of thing, which gives actors different places to go and be. Um, but there are a couple more poetic events in the years just after the war that Merita mentioned. I have used this before. I'm sure some of you will have seen it because it is one of the most extraordinary things to happen here. This poetry recital in 1946, where uh, Edith Evans and uh, Edith Sitwell um, both read poems in the most extraordinary company. John Gielgud's there, Dylan Thomas is there, uh, Cecil Day-Lewis, Louise McNeese. You've got the author, Dylan Thomas Auden. Uh, Auden wasn't there, but he, his poems were there. But Edith Sitwell, you've got T.S. Eliot, Walter de la Mare is there. Absolutely extraordinary event. Um, and then in 1947, we get this extraordinary woman, Michael Strange, who first adopted the name to publish her poems and then decided she liked it better than her original name. So she went by Michael Strange for the rest of her life. Um, she came here to do a recital of her own poetry and also readings from the Bible, accompanied by the harp, which is typically offbeat for her. So that is a selection of actresses. And that is why uh, I made this, this cheat sheet for you to take away with you, because we have gone through many names. So if any of those women are people you'd like to look up, you'll be able to. Um, later on, we'll visit some dancers and more besides. Um, so, I'm gonna take a drink of water. We have already met some of Wigmore's revolutionaries, um, women whose art was often kind of intrinsically involved with their politics. And I'm gonna talk now about two more women at the absolute forefront of revolutionizing the accepted place of women in the world of British classical music. Um, whose stories and careers brought them to the hall on multiple occasions. The more obvious of the two is Ethel Smythe, uh, and we will come to her 
but I want to make talk, time to talk about her fellow and composer, her fellow composer and performer, sorry, tripping over my words here a little bit, um, what Rubenstein called her, and I quite agree, the glorious Rebecca Clark. Uh, although her groundbreaking was with slightly less fanfare than Ethel's tended to be, uh, not only was she composing chamber music at a time when this was still primarily considered the domain of men, but she was also changing the way that music was played because her first couple of appearances here, which were very low-key, she just came to play the viola in some chanson and Handel were in 1912, and the year after that, she became one of the first women in a fully professional ensemble when Henry Wood invited her to join the Queen's Hall Orchestra. These were the first women allowed to play in a professional orchestra in Britain, and she was one of them. Uh, it was a huge deal. Um, you were only previously allowed to play the harp if you were a woman in an orchestra. As uh, I did a talk on the harp in the, in the summer last year, and uh, as I said then, it was the only instrument considered ladylike at that point, presumably because you sat down and had your legs closed and had a beautiful dress, or I don't know what nonsense, but anyway, that's all you were allowed to do. And it was a big enough deal that these women were invited into the orchestra that it drew comment in the press, including from Ethel Smythe herself. And I shall read to you from the letter that she wrote to the editors of the Times. Sir, will you allow me to point out the significance of a new departure inaugurated after years of striving by Sir Henry Wood, namely the inclusion of women in a first-class orchestra to begin with, the mere fact of belonging to certain bands enables a player to ask a good fee for lessons, and as it is mainly by teaching that orchestral musicians earn a livelihood, it is easy to gauge the importance to women of admission within the pale, a privilege till now restricted, for some mysterious reason, to harpists. People often ask, where are the great women composers? I wonder how many great male composers there would be if men had been completely shut out from the workaday world of art, deprived of the bracing, the concentration, the comradeship, in a word, the inestimable training and stimulus of professional life. It may be that time must elapse before we see the fruits of the movement of which Sir Henry Wood's splendid achievement is a symptom. But judging by the portents in science, literature, and other branches of art, see them we shall someday. And she signed it, Ethel Smythe, Doctor of Music, to make a point. So Rebecca Clark performed here again in 1914. She did performances of Beethoven and Vorjak with uh, the Classical Concert Society, a very serious series of concerts. Um, and then she went to America, which was where she found her first big successes. Um, her viola sonata was written in 1919, which was a, a, a big thing, of course. Uh, there's certainly some stories about people thinking that it was written by a man, not wanting to believe that it was written by a woman. We don't know how many of those are true, but it's definitely possible. Uh, there's definitely some reviews of people being upset to find out that it was written by a woman. Um, the sonata itself came here in 1920. It was played by Lionel Turtis, who was really the, the biggest viola player in Britain at the time. So it was obviously being taken seriously by musicians. Um, and that was two years before she came back here in 1922. And by the time she returned in 1925 to stage this concert of her own composition, she was a success internationally. She had become the only woman composer ever to be commissioned by Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge, the American patron of music who funded so many compositions in the middle of the 20th century. Um, this concert included, of course, her sonata, which she played, several songs, uh, pieces for solo violin, wonderful duets for viola and cello, uh, and a piano trio. It was a huge success, and shortly afterwards, she did it on the BBC, which was a very new thing at the time. Massive success there, too, and it should have 
cemented her as one of the mid 20th century's biggest key composers, but she could not get her works published, especially the piano trio. She got really stuck on trying to get the piano trio published and it kind of defeated her. It was really important to get your works published at that point. It was how they got into the repertoire. Um, and so unfortunately, although she played at the hall a couple more times doing other people's works, her own works only appear once or twice over the following decades. Um, it makes me incredibly happy to see a resurgence of her work, especially in the last 10 years. And in fact, in May this year, Lawrence Power is coming to give a talk and do a concert telling the story of her musical life. And it's lovely to have that happening here where she gave this concert and performed very early on in her career as well. Rebecca was born in 1886 and Ethel Smythe was born uh, nearly 30 years earlier in 1858. Um, Nevertheless, Ethel Smythe's own Wigmore Hall concert of her own compositions didn't take place until 1928, which is three years after this one, by which time she was 69 years old. So when Ethel, there she is, also sketched by Singer Sargent, he did the most wonderful portraits of musicians. Uh, her first very unassuming appearance here at the hall in 1908, you can just see it says, conducted by the composer in brackets. And that's the only indication you'd have that she was involved in this concert at all. Um, she had already been praised by Tchaikovsky. She had met Liszt and Grieg, Clara Schumann and Brahms. She had had three operas put on around the world with huge success, especially in Germany, where her music was much better received than it was in England. Um, she came back here in 1909 to conduct these songs again. And then in 1910, she met Emmeline Pankhurst and joined the suffragette cause. And, uh, Famously, she wrote the March of the Women, which became the unofficial anthem of the suffragette movement. Uh, there's this wonderful story, I'm sure some of you know, of Thomas Beecham visiting her while she was incarcerated in Holloway Prison in 1912. I arrived in the main courtyard of the prison to find the noble company of martyrs marching round it and singing lustily their war chant, while the composer, beaming approbation from an overlooking upper window, beat time in almost bacchic frenzy with a toothbrush. So as we've seen the following year, she wrote to express how glad she was to see that women were allowed into one of the major orchestras. It is easy to imagine then the outrage that brought her back to Wigmore Hall in 1920. She uh, came here at this performance by the Lady String Quartet here. Um, they were playing one of her quartets and she staged a protest outside this concert because a decision had been made to kick women out of the Halle Orchestra and she was furious. Uh, it was defended by Hamilton Harty, who claimed some people felt complete unity of style could not be obtained in an orchestra of men and women, and further, it was difficult to arrange accommodation for women when the orchestra went on its travels. Uh, and Ethel's response in the press was characteristically blunt. She said, I never heard such unutterable rubbish in all my life. She was listed as doctor on this program, and by the time she comes back in 1923, uh, she's a dame, um, and then this wonderful cover for the concert of her compositions in 1928, which we all love so much. I love many, there's many, many portraits of musicians with dogs. I don't know why it's such a thing, but I'm delighted by it every time. Uh, this is her last kind of official appearance at the hall, the last time that she was here in a capacity as a composer. Um, but I'll end her story with the story of her as a member of the audience instead. In 1940, Virginia Woolf, who'd become very close friends with her, wrote her a letter and spoke about seeing her here at a concert in November 1919. 
I suppose I told you how I saw you years before I knew you, coming bustling down the gangway at the Wigmore Hall in tweeds and spats, a little cock's feather in your felt hat and a general look of angry energy. So, I said, that's Ethel Smythe. And there she is. So earlier on, I promised you some dancers and some other seemingly unlikely people. So before I get to the last woman on my list, here is a quick tour of some of the women who did even more unexpected things on our stage than play music or declaim Shakespeare. This is, one of these women is Ruby Ginner. Uh, she taught Greek dance and movement to dancers and actors, including uh, John Gielgud. And she appeared here in 1911 in this concert uh, which was in aid of the Workers' <clears throat> Defense Union, so radical in a number of ways. Um, she was at the forefront of the Greek revival of, of dance. So this is very early, actually, for, for the, that kind of modern Greek take on dance, and some of her techniques are still being taught today. Uh, there's this bizarre and wonderful 1918 interpretative dance recital, which features lots of um, big stars of the time, including Serafina Stafieva, who was a big deal, and Lydia Kjasht, she uh, brought Russian ballet to London two years before Anna Pavlova, and she founded several companies and sc schools and schools of her own, as well as dancing in the Ballet Russe. Um, this is Menaka, who was a Bengali dancer. She was just 19 when she appeared as part of a celebration put on by the Society Union of the East and West in December 1918. Uh, a couple of years later, she met Anna Pavlova, who said, you must do this as your career, it must be dance. And so she, she did do that. She founded a dance company and a school in India. Um, she's not a household name now, but like the two previous women, she was one of the first people to bring her own style of dance to the British stage. Uh, to move to another kind of pioneer altogether, several women around this time came to the hall as part of travelogue tours. Uh, so they were some of the first women to undertake expeditions to particular parts of the world. And they would come here to give illustrated lectures and slideshows, a bit like this one, uh, to report back on their findings. So here is one by uh, Ellen Blount. This is here from June 1917. It's not long after she became one of the first women permitted to be elected a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. So she had traveled the Yukon River. She's, it's illustrated by her hand-painted lantern slides. Um, this over here at the back in the hat is Annette Meakin. It was another RGS fellow. Um, this is her mum in the front, and they were the first English women to travel to Japan on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, and in 1918, she came here to speak about uh, international issues in the wake of the, of the First World War, really, and also uh, international railways. She just was a railway person, so that's what she came in and spoke about. Um, more controversial, inarguably also a trailblazer, uh, this is Rosita Forbes who had traveled through Asia and North Africa during World War I, and in 1921 disguised herself as an Arab woman to visit an oasis in Libya which was closed to Westerners at the time. There's really no sugarcoating how uh, unfortunate her methods were. She would frequently pass herself off as a local woman in order to get access to things she shouldn't have been allowed to go to and to see. Um, and then she followed that up by hanging around with Hitler and Mussolini, and she insisted she didn't. Uh, embraced their politics in any way. She said she just liked chatting with them, which, you know, there we are. Uh, she had two silent movies made as adaptations of her travel novels. She published at least 24 books. She remains a very controversial figure for obvious reasons. Nevertheless, she did do things before other people did them, whether she should have been able to or not, and she did come here 
to talk about them, quite possibly also in costume, which is a bit awkward, but there we are. Uh, addressing the politics of the day in an entirely different fashion, finally, we come to Louisa Merrick Morris, who uh, gave a series of inspirational addresses here in 1936. She was one of the best known spiritualists uh, and mediums in the 1930s in the UK. She took part in the first seance ever recorded on film. Uh, you know, whether it's real or not, that's what she did. Uh, you can see from the blurb on this flyer, I always find it really interesting that it talks about uh, the spirit of Christ. This 1930s spiritualist movement had much more to do with a kind of esoteric sort of Christianity than the, the sort of occult dark imagery you might get in, in Hollywood movies about it. Um, she was publicly accused of fraud in the press. Daily Mail said she, oh, she, she, she doesn't do it, it's not real. I've been to two of her things, it was exactly the same. It's a, it's a script. Uh, she sued them. And while she was in court, she apparently went into a trance and spoke in what she claimed was the voice of the power of God. Um, and somehow she was found not guilty of fraud. So there we are. <laughs> Here she was uh, giving a series of <coughs> talks. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of work is being done by that word through in the title. It says inspirational addresses through Mrs. Merrick Morris. I can't find reviews of it, so I don't know whether she was in fact in a trance while she was giving these talks or not. Uh, but there we are, there she is. And uh, the subject of psychics brings me to my last person and anyone who's been to my talks before uh, will probably know that I can't resist an opportunity to speak about this woman. And uh, it's a joy to just have the time, because usually I can only include her in passing. Um, it is the all-around fascinating, incomparable pianist, composer, and psychic Rosemary Brown. If you don't know her story, it's very easy at first glance to dismiss it as woolly 1970s weirdness or a kind of sensationalist headline, the housewife becomes possessed by composers from the beyond or something. Um, but I love her and I love that she appeared here and that she brought her works and her way of life to Wigmore Hall. Um, and more than that, I feel like her story in some ways represents the same frustrations that were encountered decades earlier by Ethel Smythe. So uh, here's the thing, as far as Rosemary Brown was concerned, probably if we take her at her word, she first met the ghost of Liszt uh, when she was seven, though she didn't know who he was until she saw a picture of him much later. Um, he said, hello. He said, uh, I was a pianist and composer when I was alive, um, and I'll come back when you're grown up and I'll give you some music. And he did, maybe. He came back to see her in 1964 when she was 48 years old, and he brought with him the spirits of a whole host of other composers who all started writing music through her. She transcribed it, uh, she filled her house with hundreds of pieces of music, sonatas, miniatures, songs, symphonies, you name it, any form of music, she wrote it down. She went on television, she was interviewed by Richard Rodney Bennett, she performed for the camera, she transcribed music in real time as it was given to her by the composers hanging about in the other world. Um, and we first find her at Wigmore Hall in 1971. After doing some television specials, she'd recorded an album by this point, so... Uh, here she is, and as you might well know, in the 1970s, the hall was still, uh, in a lot of ways, a hall for hire. You could just hire it out. So it's not so much that the then director programmed her here. She, you know, she paid to come and, and do a concert at the hall, or her, her agents arranged a concert at the hall. But here she was. She plays the piano. She's assisted by a harpist and a singer and an accompanist. Um, 
as you can see, verifiable works by composers were put next to her versions of works by composers. So you've got a real Schubert piece and then Schubert through, Ro through Rosemary Brown. And, uh, you know, that was intended as a comparison. Um, critic Stanley Sadie was not convinced by the music, although he was persuaded by her sincerity uh, in her belief in what was happening to her. Um, the composers she thought she knew, she evidently regarded as dear, if somewhat aggravating, friends. Um, and I can't do better in conveying that than to read to you about her experiences with Liszt. She wrote um, several books. The first one, which I have, was, is, is called Unfinished Symphonies. It may sound strange, but I can say quite truthfully that I feel Liszt to be a great friend. We talk about everything under the sun together, serious things like the purpose of life and metaphysics. We don't talk a great deal about everyday things because he states that it is my responsibility to live my everyday life as I think best. When he does give me advice, it's done in a very kindly way, is never autocratic. He will say, this is only my opinion, and he always leaves me to make the final decision. Mind reading can be a two-edged sword. I remember one day when Liszt was trying to help me practice some music and he kept making me repeat one particular phrase over and over again. I had been through it about 20 times and was getting rather weary. And then he said, come on, try it again. And banging away rather petulantly at the keys, I thought to myself, oh dear, he is a fusspot. Well, he immediately caught the thought and before I could apologize, he'd completely disappeared. Nor did he reappear for about three weeks, by which time I was getting quite concerned. I felt guilty, which was unnecessary, as I hadn't meant to be rude. And anyway, fosspot is almost a term of endearment, hardly an insult. When he did reappear, he was very much on his dignity and rather aloof. And we began work in a very cool atmosphere. We'd been going along for some minutes, and once more he was getting to me to practice something over and over again, when he suddenly stopped and said somewhat quizzically, I suppose I'm being a fosspot. <laughs> She talks about his fascination with modern technology, especially the television, uh, and about him helping her out adding up the totals when she goes grocery shopping. Liszt introduced her to Chopin, who she said liked to wear modern dramatic purple clothes and would come to her recitals as a supportive audience. Brahms, Schubert, Bach, Rachmaninoff, Debussy, uh, they all had their quirks and characteristics and they were all part of her daily life rather than just like visiting her at moments of artistic inspiration. Was she truly being visited by the spirit of Berlioz from beyond the grave? Probably not, who can say? But what is certain is that a number of people, including academics and musicians, believed that she was, not for reasons of wishful thinking, not for reasons of saying, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have more music from Schubert? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Clara Schumann really was dictating Schumann's music because he was too shy to come and speak to her uh, through this woman? But for the same reason, they all believed that it must be true, um, even though even her supporters agreed that the music itself was not really as good as you'd hope for or expect from people like Liszt and Rachmaninoff. Even her supporters said it must be true because how could a housewife with little musical training possibly be writing this music? And I find that fascinating. I've spoken about this before. When we did our Women Composers talk, I spoke about this. I'd like us all to think about the implications of that just for a second. These are published scholars, academics in scientific fields and musical fields, saying on the record, on film and in print, that they think it is more likely 
that the ghost of Beethoven is appearing in suburban London to write new music from the afterlife than that a woman with Rosemary Brown's background could possibly write these pieces herself. And I think that's really something. They said things like, she has had no technical training, so she could not possibly produce a pastiche. Uh, one of her biggest supporters used as evidence the fact that she wasn't clever enough to do it. He said it multiple times. He said, she's not clever. She can't do it. She's not clever. They said, she does it faster than any composer possibly could. She can't possibly do that. She, she does work that could be done by a trained composer, but she's not trained. And they, this obsession with her background and the fact that she'd, she'd maybe only had a few piano lessons, that she maybe loved music but didn't understand it. And she, she fed into that to some extent. She, when she talked about herself, she said, oh, I'm, I'm very stupid and I don't know things. And when Liszt is telling me about six sharps, I have to get him to dictate it all very carefully because I don't know what it means. Was that true? We don't know. It could be that she did know what all of these things meant, but had concluded that the best way for her to have a career was to fake ignorance, which is galling as a concept. Um, it could be that she really didn't know technical terms for music, um, and that in the 1970s, no one was forward-thinking enough to think, actually, maybe you don't need musical theory <laughs> in order to produce pastiches. You could just be doing it by ear. Um, either way, she gave several concerts at the hall. Her last one here was in 1980. Um, and recent reassessments of her life and work have kind of abandoned entirely the question of whether it was made up or psychic or what it was, because the thing that they're focusing on now, which is lovely, is that if this music was not coming to her directly from Beethoven and Schubert and all their friends, she ought to be regarded as one of the most phenomenal improvisers of the 20th century. She wrote things so fast. She would come up with things on the fly, on camera, on television, uh, and, and baffled scientists. They all said she can't possibly be doing it this fast. Someone like this couldn't do it. Well, maybe someone like this could do it and was doing it. Um, and it's worth wondering whether, if she hadn't been surrounded by people constantly saying someone like her couldn't write classical music, her story might have gone rather differently. Um, as it is, we only have what we know, which is that I think she probably believed that it was true. Certainly the way that she writes about all the composers and that you know, Chopin's there recommending what onion she should get for her family dinner. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very matter of fact. And so maybe, maybe she believed it, maybe it was her subconscious, maybe it was her way of dealing with things, I don't know. But I quite like the idea of her here at the hall because I think in some ways she represents some of the things that I love the most about this place, which is that when you're here, which partly for, for a start, it's that anything can happen here so that you can look in the archive. Like I said, I, I think I have the best job because I get a unique perspective on the hall and it's because of things like this that you find this and you think, gosh, at Wigmore Hall, how marvelous. But also because I think that when you're here, you feel like the composers are around. You feel like, especially performers, I think often talk about that. They feel the presence of the people who've come here before them. They feel like, you know, the music is, it's very personal, it's very intimate. And I like that she brought that, she brought these composers she regarded as her mates to the hall and played their music. And I think that's, that's lovely. Um, and I love her. And so I chose to end this talk on her because not enough work is done about her. And I think she's due a renaissance. There we are, uh, the history of some women at Wigmore Hall. So...